We do appreciate uh, the presence of each one this morning. I'll invite you to turn in your Bibles to the book of 1 Corinthians today. The book of 1 Corinthians. Uh, as has been mentioned in our prayer, uh, our thoughts are with Brother Roy. His mom passed away last week. Uh, Brother Herman, he's in the hospital, still in intensive care, uh, still battling pneumonia, but understand making some progress and doing some better, and we are very grateful for that. For those who may not have heard, uh, we'll mention again that uh, Betty Stidemeyer's had a stroke, a uh, very serious situation, very serious situation. And so I uh, want to remember Betty and her family as well uh, today in our, in our prayers. And I was thinking that it may be that while I'm talking, your thoughts are elsewhere. Your thoughts may be with Herman or Roy or with Betty or someone uh, in a similar situation, kind of struggling. But I hope we'll be able to focus a little bit on the things that we have to say. I think there'll be appropriate things for the situation this morning. And so think along with me, if you will, from a passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. As you know from previous study, the, the church at Corinth had multiple problems. It wasn't an easy church to work with, and their relationship with Paul, for example, is somewhat shaky. Uh, they, uh, uh, there are some who are very critical of Paul uh, and uh, questioned his authority, questioned his ability uh, to be a preacher of the gospel. He's an effective preacher. And so there are multiple problems in the church at Corinth. There are serious divisions among the brethren there over a number of different issues. Some were placing a great deal of emphasis on human wisdom and a powerful presentation of one's message. And if a person didn't have that, didn't have a physical imposing presence and a powerful delivery, well, they questioned not only the man's ability, but questioned his message as well and the validity of that message. And so, especially in 2 Corinthians, Paul rises up and defends himself not because he's interested in his own reputation, but primarily in the reputation of the gospel that he preached and he represented. Another issue in the church at Corinth had to do with the eating of meat offered to idols, chapters 8 through 10. Some were there were tolerating a man who had an inappropriate sexual relationship with his father's wife. Uh, there were divisions among them as they partook of the Lord's Supper. In fact, Paul says, some of you are not even partaking of the Lord's Supper because you're taking your own supper uh, before one another. Another issue had to do with the exercise of spiritual gifts in chapters 12, 13, and 14. Uh, some some had, uh, had crept in or come into the church and were teaching false doctrine about the resurrection, saying there was no resurrection, chapter 15 and verse 12. And Paul deals with that at length in chapter 15. During the course of his letter, Paul makes some very strong comments uh, about the Corinthians. For example, in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, he refers to them as immature and carnal. They're fleshly minded and they're judging and evaluating things, not in a spiritual way, but in a fleshly way, a worldly way or a carnal way. And they were immature as well, immature spiritually. They were arrogant, chapter 5 and verse 5. Chapter 6 and verse 5, he says, I say this to your shame. In chapter 11 and verse 22, he says, Should I praise you in this? I do not praise you. And so Paul is rather strong in his criticism of the 
church at Corinth, at least on in some ways. As we approach the end of the letter, 1 Corinthians, we might expect Paul to take one parting shot at the Corinthians. They're carnal, they're immature, they should be ashamed and things like that. Maybe at the end, here's, I'm going to get in my last shot, but, but he doesn't do that. As a matter of fact, he encourages them. And the statement we're going to look at in this lesson is really one of the more memorable statements of encouragement, I think, in all Scripture. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 58. Here at the end of 1 Corinthians, where there's so much strife, where there's so much antagonism, where there's so much maybe even bitterness and division, Paul says, therefore, my beloved, that's of significance, my beloved, they still hold that uh, relationship, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. And so we're going to take as the title for our, our thoughts today, just this phrase from this passage, always abounding in the work of the Lord. We want to always be abounding in the work of the Lord. And so let's just analyze this, take this apart, I'm going to divide it into two sections and look at it uh, one section at a time. The first section is composed of these two words, be steadfast and immovable. Really, these two words say the same thing, don't they? To be steadfast is to be immovable. To be immovable is to be steadfast. They might come at that point from one from a positive point of view, be steadfast. The other one from a negative point of view, don't be moved. But they say essentially the same thing. Most English versions use this kind of language or something very close to it. The NIV, stand firm and let nothing move you. The immediate context, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, has to do with false doctrine concerning the resurrection. Paul encourages the Corinthians not to accept the false doctrine. Look at verse 12. Now, if Christ has preached that He has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? And so we know that some among the church at Corinth were saying, there is no resurrection of the dead. And so Paul is encouraging the Corinthians, be steadfast, immovable, don't be persuaded by the false doctrine, don't accept it, don't be convinced by it. And he gives them good reason not to accept the false doctrine, but to stand fast with what he had taught them. Go back to the beginning of the chapter. In verse 1 he says, Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preach to you. And so I've already taught you these things, you've already heard them, I convinced you that they were true. Now these other people are coming along and saying something different. But I want you to stand fast. I want you to be immovable. I don't want the, you to be influenced by these false teachers. And so he's going to remind them of the things that he's already, already taught them. He says, what I taught you is according to Scripture. And so you see that in verse 3. I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. Why should you not be moved away from what I taught you? Because it's grounded on and based on and founded upon what the Scriptures say. The Scriptures tell us that Christ would be would be killed, that He would die. The Scriptures tell us that He would be raised on the third day. And so that's reason enough not to be convinced by the false teachers. But he also talks about 
other evidence, the evidence of uh, the eyewitness accounts. And you see that in, again, verse 5 and following. That he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. After that he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James and to all the apostles. And last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. Here's good reason for you to believe in the resurrection. The Scriptures teach it, and we are eyewitnesses of it. I'm an eyewitness of it. Peter's an eyewitness of it. James is an eyewitness of it. In fact, he appeared to 500 brethren at one time, and if you don't believe me or Peter, you can ask them. And so there's good reason for them to hold fast, to hold on to what Paul had taught them. Then he draws out the implications of the resurrection, beginning in verse 12. Now, if Christ has preached that He's been raised from the dead, how do some among you say there is no resurrection of the dead? Now, if there's no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is vain and your faith is also vain. And he continues, you know, the passage. And so more good... So he's simply establishing the fact of the resurrection. And if Jesus has been raised, there is a resurrection of the dead. And then we can... Uh, we can be convinced that we will be raised from the dead as well. In fact, if you go down to verse 20, he says this, But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who are asleep. For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. But each in his own order, order Christ the firstfruits, after that those who are Christ at His coming." And so he gives them reason to believe, to be steadfast, to be immovable, and not be persuaded by those who would deny the resurrection. He he tells them that there are serious consequences if we do not hold fast. If we give up the idea that there is a resurrection and that Christ has been raised from the dead. Back in verse 2 he says, "...by which you are saved if you hold fast." The word which I preach to you, your salvation is at stake. In verse 33, he says, Evil companions corrupt good morals. And that's stated in this context, the context of the false teachers denying the resurrection. Evil companions corrupt good morals. What they're teaching is going to corrupt your morality. It's going to corrupt your holiness and your godliness in your life. In chapter 17, verses 17 through 19, of course, He says, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless, and you are still in your sins, then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. Do not be moved away. Stand fast. Be immovable. Do not be swayed by what they're saying. Now, no doubt Paul says this about the resurrection and these false teachers, but No doubt he would say this very thing about the other things he's addressed in 1 Corinthians as well. In his teaching regarding the Lord's Supper, he would say, Stand fast. Don't be moved. Don't corrupt the Lord's Supper into something it wasn't intended to be. In his teaching concerning spiritual gifts, be immovable. Stand fast. Use the gifts, but use them appropriately. Don't abuse them. Don't corrupt them. He would tell the Corinthians, when it comes to women speaking in the assembly and in worship, stand fast. (laughs) Be immovable. Don't be persuaded to do other than what you've been taught. And this is one of just uh, simply several other similar warnings in the New Testament. We talked in the Bible class hour about 
the rise of false doctrine, even in years just, just after the establishment of the church, very quickly false doctrines were arising and people were being persuaded by it. And so Galatians chapter 1, for example, Paul says, I'm amazed that you're so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel, which is not another, only there are some who are disturbing you want to distort the gospel of Christ. And so there are people there, they're distorting the gospel. And Paul says, I'm, I'm surprised you're so easily and so quickly abandoning the truth of the gospel for what these false teachers are saying. And so he would tell the Galatians, hold fast, hold on. Be immovable. Don't be persuaded to believe something other than what you've been taught. He tells Timothy this kind of thing repeatedly. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1, You therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that's in Jesus Christ. The things which you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Be strong in the grace. What you've learned from me, teach others as well. I remember the statement in chapter 3 in verse 14. However, continue in the things that you've learned to be con become convinced of, knowing from whom you've learned them, that from childhood you've known the sacred writings which are able to give you wisdom that leads to salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. And so he says, remember the thing, continue in the things that you've learned and become convinced of. There are other similar warnings in the Old Testament. Colossians chapter 2 and verse 8, they're warned about the false doctrine that's being circulated in Colossae. The Hebrews and uh, the book of Hebrews are encouraged to hold fast their confession firm to the end. All that simply serves to remind us when it comes to doctrine, stand fast, hold on, be steadfast, be immovable. We're going to face many challenges in our lives, and we don't want anything to move us away from truth, from faithfulness, from Christ. You know, I'd like to think that I've got an open mind. <laughs> you might not think so, but I'd like to think that I've got an open mind. But you know, there's some things that I've been convinced are true. And, and I'll listen to what you have to say, but you're going to have to convince me that they're not true. And so, you know, sometimes we think, well, I just, I've got an open mind. I'm just completely unconvinced of anything, and I'll just kind of just be swept away by anything that blow, blows along. No, shouldn't be that way. Yes, have an open mind. Consider we can always grow, and we can always learn, and we can always learn better. But I hope there's some things that you've been convinced of. And it's going to take a strong argument to convince you otherwise. <laughs> One is that Jesus is raised from the dead and there's going to be a general resurrection to come. And so that's what Paul tells Timothy. Uh, continue in the things that you've learned and become convinced of, knowing from whom you've learned them. But false doctrine is simply one of the things that we face that might sweep us away and so we need to be steadfast and, and immovable. There's the threat of just inner disposition or, or inclinations that, that might, that might uh, compromise our, our standing. For example, you know, I, I, I've said this before, and you may remember me saying this, I suppose, but I think it's true and worth, uh, worth saying again. Discouragement. Discouragement is an awfully strong weapon of Satan. 
And we get discouraged about things that happen to us in life or, or whatever it might be. We, we get discouraged, and then, you know what you want to do when you get discouraged? You just want to quit. Let's take a basketball player, and uh, he's struggling a little bit. He's not hitting his shots. He's not playing especially well. Uh, but he's a good player. He's just going through a little bit of a slump. But, but the coach begins to berate him. And the coach begins to belittle him. And the coach begins to insult him. Every time he misses it, oh, you, you're terrible. You're, you're the worst player on the team. I don't even know why you're on the team. And eventually the player gets discouraged. He's, he's just about done, isn't he? Just about done as a player. It's going to be difficult for him to get over that. And, and so discourage, and the same thing happens in the spiritual realm as well. Discouragement is a strong weapon of Satan. We get discouraged about our ability to deal with temptation, or we just get discouraged about life and its challenges. And the more we kind of remain in that state, why should I continue? Why should I keep up the fight? Why should I continue to... And we fall back into our old habits, our old sinful habits. They give us a little bit of comfort. And before you know it, we're just about, just about done. Look, be steadfast. Be immovable. We go through periods of discouragement. I'm sure all of us do. But recognize it for what it is and, and come out of it. If you need to talk to brethren for help, talk to brethren for help. If you need to talk to the Lord for some help, talk to the Lord for some help. But don't let discouragement drag us down. Understand that in due season we'll reap if we don't lose heart. And so that's just another, just that inner disposition, that uh, mental inclination that we might have. Talked about bitterness during the gospel meeting. We need to put away bitterness. It just eats at us and eats at us and eats at us. That unresolved anger that we have in our hearts. And, and before you know it, we're, we're slipping away. And so be steadfast. Be immovable. Don't let these things move us away from, from our, our faithfulness. The temptation to sin. You know, the devil is, is uh, roaming around as a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. So we're always facing temptation. And some of those struggles we face repeatedly, kind of over and over again. And, and if we're not careful, well then, well then those, those things will, will overcome us and we'll be moved away. We need to do everything we can to stand that's what Ephesians chapter 6 tells us in verse 16. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the full armor of God that you'll be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. So, take up the full armor of God so that you'll be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything to stand firm. Take up the full armor of God. Stand firm. Stand fast. The words of Jesus help us. Matthew chapter 7, as Jesus concludes the Sermon on the Mount, Everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them may be compared to a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and slammed against the house. 
Some of the things we've been talking about, temptation, false doctrine, discouragement, bitterness, the rain and the storm slamming against the house. But if we hear the words of Christ and do them, when that happens, our house will not fall because it will be founded on the rock. And so here's the first part. My, therefore, my beloved brethren, be, be steadfast. Be immovable. Think about the things that you've learned and been convinced of and continue in them. And then the second part of the passage that we're going to look at says, we should always be abounding in the work of the Lord. If the former point was somewhat passive, you know, be immovable, be steadfast. This is altogether active, isn't it? Be abounding. Always be abounding in the work of the Lord. Now, you know, I kind of hesitate to use these absolute terms like always. There's always an exception. There's always an exception. <laughs> Never, none, all. I kind of hesitate to use words like that. As soon as I do, somebody will, well, you know, that, that didn't happen in this case. Paul doesn't hesitate to use those kinds of words. Always be abounding. Whatever he means by abounding in the work of the Lord, there should never be a time when we're not involved in the work of the Lord and not abounding in the work of the Lord. As we said a moment ago, he doesn't define for us what the work of the Lord is, but it's a wide, it covers a wide range of things, doesn't it? We might look at the, the, what Jesus Himself did. In Mark chapter 1 and in verse 38, uh, Jesus says that He needs to go to other cities to teach because that's what I came to do, He says. Verse 38, Mark chapter 1, Let us go somewhere else to the towns nearby so that I might preach there also. That's what I came for. The work of the Lord was to teach. That's what the Lord did. He, he went from place to place teaching. And in this passage, he says, that's what I came to do. That, that was his work. In Luke chapter 19 and verse 10, Jesus in his encounter with Zacchaeus says that the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. What's the work of the Lord? Well, if you look at the Lord and what he did, his work was to seek and save the lost. And so if we're going to follow that example, well, we're going to be involved in that work. That's the work of the Lord, to seek and save the lost. In Acts chapter 10, when Peter's at the house of Cornelius, he describes the uh, life of Jesus and his ministry in these words. He went about doing good, healed all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. Going about doing good. Healing is an example of going about doing good. If that's the work of the Lord, to teach, to seek and save the lost, to go about doing good, well, that's what we need to be involved in as disciples. Luke chapter 5 and verse 32, Jesus says, I came to call sinners to repentance. So similar to teaching, seeking and saving the lost, calling sinners to repentance. And then he went about doing good. The work of the Lord would include the work the Lord has assigned His disciples to do. That could also be described as the work of the Lord. And so when we're doing the work that God assigned disciples to do, we're involved in the work of the Lord. And of course, what the Lord did, He expects His disciples to do. And so the work of reaching the lost with the gospel, we've already seen that this is what Jesus did, but this is what He gave His disciples to do as well. They were to go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Matthew chapter 28, verse 18 and following. 
In Acts chapter 8 and verse 4, we find that these early Christians, the early disciples, they were scattered because of the persecution in Jerusalem, went everywhere preaching the Word. Those, those were not the apostles. The apostles stayed in Jerusalem. It was the other disciples who went everywhere preaching the Word and reaching the lost with the gospel. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 8, Paul commends the church at Thessalonica because the word of the Lord was sounded forth from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but in every place. Your faith toward God has gone forth. Here's the church with the reputation of sending forth the word of the Lord, sending the gospel out, teaching the gospel, reaching the lost with the gospel. It's interesting to me how often these statements include just regular folk, just, just not specially trained disciples, but just regular, everyday, ordinary disciples. Tells the Corinthians, you abound in the work of the Lord, part of which is spreading the gospel and taking the gospel to those who need to hear it. But it also includes developing to maturity in the faith. What is the work of the Lord? Well, the work of the Lord is to grow and develop in the faith. We become Christians. Our work, our responsibility is to grow and mature. Peter expresses it this way. In your faith supply moral excellence, in your moral excellence knowledge, in your knowledge self-control, in your self-control perseverance, your perseverance godliness, in your godliness brotherly kindness, and your brotherly kindness love. If these qualities are yours and increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Our work, the work of the Lord, the work the Lord has assigned to us, is to grow and develop and mature in the faith by adding these qualities. Other passages suggest very similar things. 2 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 1 tells us that we need to eliminate everything that would defile flesh and spirit and to perfect holiness in the fear of the Lord. And so we need to be growing in holiness and eliminating anything that would inhibit our spiritual growth. And so growth and development is something we need to devote ourselves to as, as disciples. That's the work of the Lord. Uh, churches are to be involved in this, of course. We are to be involved in providing opportunities for our people to grow and develop in the Lord. But really, each of us as individuals need to take on that individual responsibility to grow and develop. If you're not where you want to be spiritually as a Christian in your growth and development, all right, take on the burden or the responsibility to, to grow and develop yourself. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11 says, He gave some to the apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the work of the service, to the building up of the body of Christ. So we are all to be built up and build up in the body. The work of the Lord includes being and developing into the kinds of husbands and wives and fathers and mothers He would have us to be the kind of worker, the kind of student, the kind of neighbor He would have us to be. If we want, need to work on a specific area as a husband in order to, for, to be what the Lord wants us to be, that's our work, isn't it? <laughs> and so if as a husband I need to be more patient, as I grow and develop in patience, I'm busy about the Lord's work. That's, that's what the Lord would have me do as a husband or as a wife, a father, a mother a parent, and so forth. Several New Testament passages speak to this. 
Ephesians chapter 5, for example, deals with husbands and wives and children and fathers and servants on into chapter 6. We should be involved in encouraging our brothers and sisters in Christ. That's the work of the Lord, isn't it? If we're to abound in the work of the Lord, we need to be involved in encouraging one another, our brothers and sisters in Christ. Hebrews chapter 3 and verse 13. But encourage one another day after day, as long as it's still called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. How often do we encourage our brothers and sisters in Christ? Our goal is to present everyone perfect in Christ. Colossians chapter 1, verse 28. All right, we, we need to be involved in that. And not simply involved in that, Paul says abound in that. The work of the Lord includes doing good works. We're to be zealous of good works. Titus chapter 3 and verse 8. Jesus went about doing good, and as His disciples we should as well. The work of the Lord would also include expressing our adoration and gratitude to God and pledging our allegiance to Him in worship. Right? That's, that's the work of the Lord. That's what the Lord would have us do. To, to gather together with others and express in, in, in together in com, com, community to express our gratitude, our praise, our adoration, and to pledge our allegiance to the Lord. Think about, I thought about David along these lines. The 122nd Psalm, verse 1, I was glad when they said to me, let's go to the house of the Lord. As you may know, the 22nd Psalm, David deals with a rather extreme set of circumstances. This is the Psalm that's applied to Christ and actually fulfilled in Christ. But in the course of all this, David says, I will tell of your name to my brethren in the midst of the assembly. I will praise you. You fear the Lord, praise Him. All you descendants of Jacob, glorify Him. Stand in awe of Him, all you descendants of Israel. And the context of that suggests it's in the midst of the assembly. Not privately, in the midst of the assembly, we express our gratitude and our thankfulness to God and our praise to God. Look at the 35th Psalm in verse 18 as well. Psalm 35, verses 17 and 18. Lord, how long will you look on, rescue my soul from their ravages, uh, my, my, my only life from the lions? I will give you thanks in the great congregation. I will praise you among a mighty throng. He looks forward to the time when he's in the congregation and he's expressing his gratitude and uh, ex extending his praise to God. Look at chapter 40 or the 40th Psalm and we're going to look at uh, verses 9 and 10. I proclaim glad tidings of righteousness in the great congregation. Behold, I will not restrain my lips, O Lord, you know. I have not hidden your righteousness within my heart. I have spoken your faithfulness and your salvation. I have not concealed your loving kindness and your truth from the great congregation over and over again. I'm looking forward to the time when I can be in the congregation and I with others can praise God and express my gratitude and lift our voices together in praise, praise to God. And so over and over again in the Psalms, praise the Lord, praise the Lord. Consider what we do in worship. Praise God, we commune with Christ, we are built up, we build up, we learn, we teach, we're reminded, we're made firm, 
We're inspired, we're encouraged, we're corrected. Why would we want to do the least we can do? Is that our attitude? Well, I'm doing enough. <laughs> why, why would we want to do the least praise we can do? Why would we want to do the least edification we can do? <laughs> uh, uh, why do we not look forward to more and more and more opportunities to get together with God's people and lift our voices together in worship. I would call your attention to this particular passage, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Always abounding in the work of the Lord. And so if our attitude is, well, yeah, you know, I'm doing enough. Is that abounding in the... I would ask, uh, suggest we need to rethink our attitude. <laughs> You know, I, I, I would encourage us to rethink, you know, if, if, you know, I used to be here Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, gospel wing, but, but now, not, not so much. Oh, is that abounding? Are you abounding in the work of the Lord? If that's the situation, I would suggest reconsider. Paul says we should always be abounding in this work. Always abounding. To abound is to go beyond to exceed established or acceptable limits, measures, or boundaries, to do more than what is ordinarily done. Related words include abundant, abundantly, abundance. If you have a container and you're pouring, maybe you're pouring rice into a jar or something, and, and you, you pour it in there, to, to abound would be to fill it up and more. It's, it's overflowing. That's our goal, to, to abound in the work of the Lord, overflowing more than accepted or usual practice. Galatians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14, Paul says that he was more extremely zealous for his ancestral traditions. He describes his efforts to punish or to persecute the church. He punished them often in all the synagogues, men and women. He imprisoned them. He voted against them. He, he persecuted it to the death, even to foreign cities, and he describes that as abounding. I was abounding in these things. That's what it means to abound, to, do, to, to pursue what you're pursuing the way Paul pursued the church when he was persecuting it. Are we abounding in the work of the Lord? And of course, when Paul becomes a Christian, he pursues the promotion of the gospel with the very same zeal abounding in the work of the Lord in that area. So there are specific areas where the New Testament teaches us to abound, and for the sake of time, we won't look all of these up. But in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 20, Jesus tells us that our righteousness must exceed the righteousness of the Pharisees. That's the word abound. It must go beyond the accepted standards set by the Pharisees and others that accepted the standards set by them. We, we need to exceed that. 1 Corinthians 14 and verse 12, we are to abound in the edification of the church. Abound in edifying the church. Not, not receiving edification, but doing the work of edifying, to abound in that. We are to abound in generosity. 2 Corinthians 8 verse 2 and verse 7, we are to abound in joy, to abound in faith and speech and knowledge and diligence and love. 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 7, all that said within the same context. Paul uses the Macedonian brethren who are in deep affliction, in deep poverty, 
But they gave generously. They abounded in their liberality. They abounded in their generosity. 2 Corinthians chapter 9 and verse 8 tells us that we need to abound in every good work. God makes His grace to abound toward us. Remember where sin is, grace abounds much more. But God makes His grace abound toward us so that we have sufficient supplies for every good work. So we can abound in every good work. Colossians 2 verse 7 tells us to abound in thanksgiving. To abound in... I know yesterday the ladies studied thanksgiving. Abound in thanksgiving. Overflow in thanksgiving, in word and deed. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 verses 1 and 2 suggests we are to abound in holiness. You know, the world will accept a certain degree of holy behavior. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I get you're one of those, you're a holy person, you know. And they they kind of tolerate that. But we are to abound in holiness, in holy conduct, to excel in it. Not being sanctimonious about it, but certainly being sanctified in our behavior. We're to abound in love, Philippians 1, verse 9, 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 11 through 13, and 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 9 and 10. We want to love all men, but especially our brethren. And Jesus Himself sets the standard as He washes the disciples' feet. He tells them that you are to love all, all men as I have loved you. And that's going to be the sign that you are my disciples when they see this kind of love in you toward others. And Romans 15 verse 13 tells us to abound in hope. Our hope goes beyond the hope most people have. What do most people hope for? I hope for a nice life. I want to live in a nice house, in a nice neighborhood, drive a nice car, have food to eat and clothes to wear. But our hope makes us optimistic for a better world, even in the face of severe trial. And we abound in hope because of the promise of God. Well, finally, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 58, that our labor is not in vain in the Lord. He reassures us that our labor is not in vain. There may be times when we think we accomplish nothing. I don't know that I'm, not, I don't know that I'm accomplishing anything. <laughs> Studies that go nowhere, brethren that don't grow and develop, holy lives that have no influence, Parental effort that falls on deaf ears, spouses that don't care and show it by their behavior. We wonder, I, I, don't, know that I'm getting, I don't know that I'm accomplishing anything. Always remember this promise. Your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Think about a similar statement made in Hebrews chapter 6 and verse 10. Hebrews 6 verse 10. God is not unjust so as to forget your work and the love which you've shown toward His name and having ministered and still, and still ministering to the saints. God will not forget your work and your love that you've shown toward His name. And so as discouraged as we may get, as, as discouraged as we may become sometimes, do not ever forget your labor is not in vain in the Lord. It will be rewarded. If not now, if not in the outcome that we would like to see, then certainly when we stand before God in judgment. Your labor is not in vain. We begin by saying this is one of the more encouraging statements. I, in, in the New Testament, it is an encouraging statement, isn't it? <laughs> Look, 
There's lots of danger out there. Be, be strong. Be steadfast. Be immovable. You know, stay in the truth that you've been taught and become convinced of. Don't let anything move you away from these things. And then abound in the work of the Lord. Not just doing enough to get by, but always abounding in that work. It will be rewarded. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we're thankful for this opportunity to come together to, to study from your word, uh, to worship you, to encourage one another along the way. Father, we pray that uh, we'll be renewed in our strength and our, our vigor to, to stand firm, not, not to be moved away from the truth that, that we've learned, but to be immovable. And not only that, Father, but to busy ourselves with the work of the Lord, to abound in it, to always abound in the work of the Lord in whatever area that, that may be. Uh, help us, Father, to see those opportunities where where we can uh, do your work and help us to take those opportunities, take advantage of them and do that work to the very best of our ability. Father, we're thankful for your promise that our work in the Lord is not in vain, that you see what we're doing. And although it may seem as though that, that we're not accomplishing much in this life, we understand, Father, that you see and you know and that you will reward our labors for your cause. Help us to follow in the, examples of, the example of Christ in all that we do. Help us to be faithful even unto death, as he was. Help us to look forward to that victory beyond the grave. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. If you're here this morning,